Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this time that we have to come together and to worship. We ask you to guide and lead us and show us what you would have us to see through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 43, starting at verse 8. We've been, God has been talking to his people, telling them that they're not giving him the glory, not, not honoring him. Uh, he told them at the beginning of the chapter that when they walk through the fire, they won't be burnt. Uh, and then he talks about how they don't aren't hearing. So in verse 8, Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there is no other God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no, there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, I have showed, and there is no stranger, strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? All right. So here God is challenging the people. Go find people. In this case, he's saying the, the blind that have eyes and the deaf that hear, which are really, he's talking about all those who aren't following him, that, that uh, are, are seeing things with their eyes, but really not seeing kind of the way we were before we got saved. We saw and we heard and we didn't actually hear and we didn't actually see. Uh, so he's saying, gather all those people together. He goes, let all the nations or the Gentiles be gathered together and let the people be assembled. He says, all right, everybody who's not a Jew, gather them together. And in this case, I believe he's talking just as Paul said that he's talking about the Jews that really are Jews. The ones that are following God and not just Jew in name only. All right? Because many people today and in Paul's day and in Isaiah's day were Jews because they were born Jew. You know, mom and dad are Jews, I'm a Jew. And they didn't care about God, they didn't follow him. And as far as God's concerned, they were blind, they were deaf, and they, did, they were as, as just as good as Gentiles because they didn't trust. They did not believe. He says, let them all get together. Let the people be assembled. Who can declare? Who can show us the former things? So he's saying he's challenging the people. Now the implication is nobody can. Nobody can declare anything about God. He goes, who can show, who can declare the truth? Who can show me what's past and what is future? And this is the one thing that God keeps bringing up in the prophets. Is there any other God that can tell you the future? Yeah, and we find that no, there aren't. We have people who pretend to be prophets and either their prophecies are so generic that you know, anything makes it, makes it work or they're totally wrong. And either way, it doesn't, doesn't work. God gives specific uh, prophecies. He said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin and that he would go to Egypt and that the, the kings would visit him and all these things and we go right down the line he'd be of the line of David he'd be, a, be born from a virgin and we look at it and he fits all of the points and the odds 
I, one time I read the odds on it because it was pointed out. The odds of everything that was said about Jesus being born are so astronomical that nobody would make that bet that they would ever happen. You know, not, not the most hardened gambler would make the bet that, it that all those things would have been fulfilled, and yet they were. And here God is saying, you get to everybody together, let them show, let them show us the former things, let them bring forth their witnesses that they can be justified. God says, I'm going to hold court, get your witnesses, get your case put together, and try to justify yourself. And when we stand before a holy God, there won't be a justification, because we'll start to really see who we are. That is when we're going to see that our righteousness is, is tainted, all the good that we do is bad, and all of us as Christians, we don't stand there, but the world will see, all right? They're going to go in thinking, all right, here's my chance. And we hear it all the time. When, you know, when I get to God, I'm going to give him an earful, you know, for all the bad he's let me go through. When you stand before God, you're going to be so awestruck that you're not, you're not going to speak a word. And he'll just show you, you know, that it really was for your good, even for the lost. He's trying to draw them to him. The fact that they reject him is another story altogether. And this happens a lot of times. God is trying to put us through hard things to get us to turn to him. And oftentimes it pushes people further away because of the hardness of their heart. I just will not turn to God. I will not surrender to him. I am just going to rebel and I'm going to do it my way and, and keep going my way. And many of them are going to go their way until they all go and say, God, what's going on? And God says, you're going my way. You're going straight to hell. And this is what's going. He says, bring for the witnesses that they may be justified. Well, let them hear and say, it is true. Let them hear the witnesses and say, yes, it's all true. The witnesses are true. You're righteous. And they're going to find out, no. God says, no. You're, it's going to ring so hollow when we stand before God. When, when people stand before God and try to justify their actions, they're going to start seeing things from a total different way. And there's not going to be any justification. People aren't going to be able to say, God, you know, you lied when you said you're the only way. You, you lied when you said that we have to come through you. You lied when, when you said our righteous isn't good enough. Look how good I am, and God's going to say, yeah, look how, look how stinky, filthy rags you're wearing, and tell me about how good you are. And this is what he's saying. God is challenging. Bring your witnesses. Try to, try to defend your case. Try. And he's going to be in heaven with this attitude going. You're standing before the white throne judgment. Are you ready to bring your case? And there's not going to be anything that can be said to get over the judgment. And he says, check it out. And then he turns to the, the Jews and says, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. This isn't just the Jews. In Isaiah's day it was a Jew, but for us as Christians, we are his witnesses. God will be able to point to us and say, these are my children who I've made righteous. These are my children who turned to me and accepted my gift. These are my children that I've been able to bless. These are my children that have honored me with their words and with their actions. Now, luckily for us, we'll, we'll, we'll confess our sins and they'll be under the blood and he will be pointing to perfection. But he'll say, these are my witnesses. You guys think you have a witness? You think your righteousness is good? You think you have a place? My called children are my witness. And we will be his witnesses when we stand before God. When they stand before God, he'll point over to us and say, those are mine. Those are mine. They did it my way. 
they came to me through Jesus Christ. They repented. They accepted the sacrifice of my son and were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They are perfect. And then I'll turn to them and look and say, here's your righteousness, filthy rags. You want to you try to defend yourself? Can you imagine what it will be like standing before God? Not in your sin, because Jesus paid the sin, but in filthy rags of your own righteousness, trying to say, God, look at me. I deserve to go to heaven. Yeah. And you're going to look down and say, well, gee, God, couldn't you give me the good, my good works? And he did I did. I gave you your good works. Now what do you want to say about it? Yeah. And this is... You know, there is going to be a judging at the white throne judgment God is not the loving easygoing person that everybody wants to believe that he is at the white throne judgment he is all justice you're, you're done grace is done you're standing before God because you deserve judgment at that place and he's going to give you judgment he will be the good judge you've asked for your penalty you rejected the, the forgiveness you rejected the grace now you want what you wanted you're going to get it. And he will, they will be condemned. And he says, you know, I have chosen you that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. For there is no God formed, neither is there, shall there be after me. God says that we will know, we will understand. How does he get us to know and understand? He does it through trials and tests. That is how we really get to know who God is. Now, there are people that say, well, I just want to know God. I want to, I want to be happy and go lucky for the rest of my life. You know, I just want God to be a big sugar daddy up there and just give me everything I want with no problems in my life. That is not what God does. Is, well, but you know, this is, this is actually taught in a lot of pulpits in America. Come to Christ and everything is going to be good. Your life will be perfect. Jesus said that they hated me, they're going to hate you. He says there'll be trials and tribulations. And God reveals himself through the trials that we go through so that he comes and stands beside us and walks us through the trials. He reveals himself to us by our trials. If we didn't go through trials, we wouldn't have any trust in God. Why would we trust him? We would just forget. We are human beings and we forget because we get to the place where what have you done for me lately? Well, God, you, you blessed me yesterday, but what are you doing for me today? The children of Israel did that all the time. God, you delivered us from Egypt, but, what, you, know, but you drug us out here to kill us. Well, you got us through the Red Sea, but now we're thirsty. You gave us water, but now we're hungry. Forty years of complaining every time God gave them a blessing. But this is how God proves himself. He proves himself through what he strengthens us to go through. And this is something we've got to fully understand, that when bad things seem to happen to us, it's God saying, are you going to trust me? Are you going to let me hold you up? Are you going to let me guide you? Now, it's not easy going through hard times and trusting God all the time. You know, it really does come down to, though, do I truly believe him? And every one of these tests really will show do I believe him? Do I fully trust him? Do I believe who he says he is? And this is why I keep going. My favorite verse is, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. God keeps us. He protects us. He helps us. And it's very important for us to understand all of this that he's going through.
And he says, I have formed you, and I am your God. I am he. There is no other God before me, and there isn't another God after me. He's eternal. He's not going to change. He is God. This is why he said, even in this verse, I am he. God is I am. He does not change. He is who he is. In Exodus, he says, I am that I am. And that's interpreted by many to be, I am the existing one. I am existing. I have existed. I will exist. But I am the existing one. I am, and I don't change. And that's one of our things, that God is immutable. He does not change. And there'll be people who, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he was mean and angry and, and bitter. And the God of the New Testament is all love and sweet and kind. No, he hasn't changed. I see so much grace in the book of Isaiah. You know, it talks about a God that loves us. You know, and then we see you know, Ananias and Sapphira being one of the biggest characters. They lied, they lied to the church and to God, and God killed them. Sounded very familiar to what happens in the Old Testament. Lie to God and get killed. Yeah. Most people in today's church are probably glad that God does not kill people who lie to the church. We might have some empty churches, a lot of empty churches if that was true, because they try to make it look like I'm something that I'm not. And this is why it's important that we be humble before God and just let people know, you know, we make mistakes. All of us make mistakes. And I have, been in, I have seen people who seem to pretend that they don't make mistakes. I don't know who they're trying to fool, but they're trying to say, make people think that they are somehow perfect, that, they does, that God is so lucky to have them, and the church is lucky to have them because of what's going through. And you know, the thing about it is God is the one that does the work through us. And we need to be able to understand, God is not looking for people who want to be superstars. He is not looking for people who want to be leaders. He's looking for servants that are willing to serve him and by serving him, serve others. And then God raises them up and, and blesses them and gives them great, great blessings. And you know, it's wonderful to see people that are humble, even when God is using them greatly, because there's that time like, God, why me? Why me? Of all people out there, why me? And if you ever get to the place where you think, well, God, you know, I'm just so happy you used me. You know, I deserve it, and you know, the people should be glad that I'm here to serve you. Forget it. You get that attitude, God is going to slap you down so fast that you're, you're making your head spin, and you'll wonder why, why you got knocked down. <laughs> why me? You know, God, I, I was the perfect example. What am I doing down here? You know, and he says, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no savior, no savior. Reminiscent of what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. God says, I am the only way. You're not going to be rescued. You're not going to be saved without him. I'm going to expand this even further than just being saved from sin, literally being saved by what we go through. Without God, we will not be victorious in this life. Ultimately, I might have some few skirmishes where I might look good, but ultimately, if I'm not wrapped up in Christ, wrapped up in God, I will fail. And this is the wonderful thought. The Lord, God, is everything. He is Lord. 
and I emphasize this so much, especially for us as Americans, we have no idea what it means to, to have a Lord because we just don't think in those terms. And it's hard. There are countries where they have kings and rulers that are, that are either despots or dictators. They know what it means to have a Lord. Sometimes they're bad lords, sometimes they're good lords. Here in America, we just think, well, don't like, I don't like my leader, I'll vote him out next, next time I get a chance. I don't have to listen to him anyway. He's, he's only temporary. He or she's only temporary. We don't really understand, and this is why it's hard for us as Americans, and this is someplace where we have a problem. We don't understand the idea of a sovereign person who has control over us. If you put yourself into medieval Europe, you didn't own the property that your family lived in for all their life. The king owned it, and the king could come along and say, I want your building and kick you out of your property. Even though your family had lived there for hundreds of years, if he he, you know, the monarch decided they wanted your building and you wanted your business, you were kicked out because it belonged to them. Because you didn't own anything. This is the type of God we have. He owns everything. If he wants to take everything away from us, then he is perfectly in his rights to take everything away from us and make us totally dependent upon him. If he wants to give us great blessings and, uh, and positions, it's within his right. And we need to really be able to understand this because people go, well, God, why are you doing this to me? The real question is, why not? Why not? He is God. He can do what he wants. And I just need to lean on him. He promises to meet my needs. So if he takes everything away from me, he's going to meet my needs. Sometimes that's hard for us to figure out, hard for us to want, but he's going to meet our needs. Now, our needs may not be defined by God the same as we define our needs. God says, all you need is a place to put your head and, and food, food in your belly. I don't need a full refrigerator or a, uh, a pantry full of food. I don't need a feather bed or a big bed. All I need is a place to sleep and some food in my belly, and God says, you're okay. And we need to be able to understand that. When God puts us through something, it's his plan. And we've got to quit asking and begging God, you know, I don't understand this, God. Our job is just to do, and just to do what we're told. And it used to be somewhat understood even in our, in our lifetime. People went to work and they did what they were told. Nowadays, you have to explain everything you want them to do and, it, you know, and it, you know, beg them to do what they're supposed to be doing. That is not God. God says, this is what you're going to do. You don't like it? Well, let's get you to do it anyway. All right? It says, verse 12, I have declared and saved, I have showed, when there was no strange God among you, and therefore you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. He says, I've declared unto you, I'm the one that saved you, I have shown you, and I throws in this little put, when there was no strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses. Israel kept going into idolatry and rejecting God. And God says, would you quit this? You're my witnesses. Quit going off the wrong direction. But you know, he says the same thing to us as, as Christians so often. How often do we put things before God? An idol is anything that is more important to us than God is. And literally, that can be anything. And how do we know if we had an idol? Well, the easiest way is to look at what I spend my time doing. Does God have a great portion of my time? Does he have at least a tenth of my time? 
You know, where, where do I spend my money at? You know, if I go to church for two hours a week, but I spend 25 hours a week on front of the television, the television is probably my idol. You know, because that's what I'm spending all my time on. If I'm spending more than the 40 hours a week that's pretty much required, work has become my idol. And maybe, maybe I'm working a job that requires 50. You know, there's some jobs that require 50, but if I start spending 60, 70, 80 hours a week at work, work is my God. God is no longer my God, work is my God. All right? If I spend all my time and, and money and effort into my hobbies, then I'm just telling people God is not my God. Now that doesn't mean all we do is God. Okay, God is not saying that hobbies are wrong. We're not even saying a little bit of television would be wrong. But lots of it on anything is not what we're supposed to be. And this is what I've said so often. Do we spend a tenth, a tenth of our time with God? You know, do we spend two and a half hours every day with God, 16.8 uh, 16 hours a week with God? Most of us don't. But God is saying, Am I your God? Are you giving me what I have asked for? And, you know, it's pretty simple to give God time, but it's also simple not to give God time because we can get wrapped up. God, I got up a little late this morning. I got to rush to work. I don't have time to pray and, and read the Bible today. Or God, it's just one of those slow days. I am just dragging and I'm rushing off to work. Get back done from work and now we're playing catch up for all the stuff we didn't do earlier because we were so run down and then we forget about God again. Don't read our Bible. Don't pray. Don't spend time. It is so easy to do. I fall into that trap myself at times. You know, just forget God on, on the day because I'm just so busy. It's not, and those are usually my worst days. Nothing goes right on those days. God has been left out and God says, well, you didn't bring me into your day. We're going to make sure you, you know, have a hard time. Maybe, maybe you'll find some time to pray to me when, if the day gets bad enough. Yeah. Smash your thumb, have a flat tire, uh, run into traffic, you know, whatever it might, might be. And he says, well, got enough time for me yet? Got enough time for me yet? Are you ready to pray and, and bring me into your, into your day? You know, part of my day is real easy. I travel a lot, so I get to listen to God and put him in, in place with the, with the radio shows that I listen to and the preaching. And he says... Verse 13, Yea, before the, the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver you out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? So God's saying, I'm going to do what I want. And you're not going to stop me. You know, he says, before the day was, I am. He is reiterating the I am's over and over again. Before your day even starts, he goes, I am God. Before there ever was a day. It hasn't even started. Before that day even existed, I'm God. And I'm God of the day as it starts happening. And he says, there is none that can deliver you out of my hand. What God has in store for us is going to happen. Period. I can't stop God's hand from moving. I can't stop his plan from being accomplished. Job, as much as he would have wanted to, could not stop God's hand from moving when he gave permission to Satan to take away all of his stuff. We cannot control God. And this is the thing we need to really begin to understand. I can't control God. You can't control God. He is going to do what he wants. I can complain if I want, but God is still going to do what he wants. 
And it's not going to matter what I say, what I do. You know, uh, God does not, has never made any of us his advisor. He never asked us for advice. And yet, so many times, we try to be his advisor. God, you know, I would never have done it that way. Why did you do it that way? I can almost picture God laughing, you know, uh, well, I didn't hire you to be my advisor. I don't need counselors. Uh, matter of fact, I know a little bit better about what's going on than you know in the first place, so just relax and rest. But we do it so easily. God, why? Why did all these bad things happen? God, why did those bad things happen to them? God, I just don't understand. I'm supposed to be just like you. I'm supposed to be God, so you just tell me what, what, why you're doing what you're doing, and I'll be happy. We still wouldn't be happy. But, you know, we get so easily into this place where we say, God, why? What are we doing when we judge that? When we make that judgment, we're judging God. God says we're not to judge in the first place. We're not to judge each other, and yet we can dare to judge God. God, you did these things, and I just don't understand it, and you didn't explain them to me, so you must be wrong. And I know we don't think that way, but isn't that really what we're saying when we say, God, why? Why did you let this happen, or how, how come you're letting this go on? You know, God, did you kind of lose your marbles? You know, uh, I don't understand this, so because I don't understand it, it can't be right. We need to be very careful when we start getting this way with God. And we've all done it, myself included. We've all done it. God, why? How come? Explain yourself. But Job, toward the end of the book of Job, kept saying, God, I just want God to come down here and explain this to me. You know, I want him to hear my defense. I want him to know that I don't think he's fairly fair at the moment. And in his case, God came down and said, Job, stand up, get ready to defend yourself. And what did it say? Job clamped his hands over his mouth. He had nothing to say when God came before him because God demanded of him. Where, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Where were you when this happened? Where were you when that happened? Have you ever commanded the rains to fall and, and grow the grass? Have you ever fed all the animals in this world? You know, have you controlled the oceans? Have you told the oceans how far they can come and no further? He just hammered Job. And Job just said, I've got nothing to say. Which is exactly what this, this, this verse is saying. God would call the Gentiles and say, okay, defend yourself. I'm going to give you some questions and you're not going to have answers and you're going to be keeping your, clamping your hands over your mouth because you won't have a word to say. Because God says, I show myself through what I have done for you. This is the good news. God is our defender. He is our protector. He is not asking us to defend him. He's not asking us to ask him why. He's asking us to trust that he knows what's best. And this is the good news for us. And this is why we need to really trust God. God, you have my best in store. I may not understand why it's best. God, I know that it hurts. And I know that it hurts at times when we go through things. Because God is saying, I want you to trust me. And the more we fight on it, the more it hurts. Uh, if you've ever had a shot or something and you get all tense and you get all tight and tense, the shot hurts real hard because your muscles are so tense. If you just relax and you don't know what's coming, the next thing you know, they're giving you the shot and they're done, and sometimes if they're really good, you don't even know that it's happened. 
Uh, same thing if you cut yourself. If you ever cut yourself with paper and it happened so fast that you didn't even feel it, or a knife is sharp, you know, like some of the restaurant knives they've used, yeah, so sharp you get yourself cut and you look down and go, oh, ouch, it hurts. <laughs> you know, but it didn't hurt as it was happening because of where your attention was. This is the way God can be with us. If we just focus on him, hide in him, we don't notice the pain. We don't notice what's going on. Because our focus isn't on what's going on, it's on God. I'm looking at the beauty of God. I'm looking at the fact that he is. I'm looking at the fact that he's got a good plan for me. And I just walk through the trials. Other times I, I'm not focused on God. I'm looking at the trial and I'm being knocked over. I'm being pushed around. I'm being cut. I'm being bruised. And finally, if I'm smart, I finally look to God and hide, hide in him and say, God, I'm a little tired of being battered and bruised. Can I come inside? And he goes, sure. This is what's important. God will never tell us no, that, that he's going to protect us. He always is there to protect us. When we are tired of being beat up, we're tired of being bruised, we're tired of the sin, God is always there to re receive us back. This is something that's amazing for us because we can't figure it out sometimes. God, why would you be there? Why would you accept me? God, I know how bad I am. How can you, how can you accept me? And his answer is always the same. My son died for your sins. You are perfect. We really do have to begin to understand how God sees us. And because we get so caught up in our experience. God, I know I'm a lousy, terrible person. That, and I don't know why you even, even would put up with me. And God says, well, if I was looking at you, I wouldn't. But I'm looking at my son. He died for you. And I put his righteousness on you. So I don't care how bad you are. Now, that's not saying they won't have consequences, but God, from God's perspective, he sees perfection. He says, I don't care how bad you think you are. I see perfection. Now, we do know, and I keep harping on this, if I do wrong things, I will have consequences. But God is not seeing the bad, and he's not using those consequences to try to hurt us. He's trying to use those consequences to grow us and draw us closer to him. He still loves us. He still loves us greatly and loves us to a point that we can't even fathom the way he loves us. He loves us that much. I can't see how he still loves us when he sees that we are doing wrong and he knows that before we even do it. But understand, Jesus died on the cross and put the sin under the blood. When God looks at us, he does not see the sin. Yes, he knows, you know, in the cognizant side of his mind, he knows that we are sinners. But because he has declared us perfect under the blood of Christ, he doesn't see the sin. Now, the laws of sowing and reaping mean we're going to suffer the consequences unless God steps in supernaturally and, and blocks the consequences. So don't ever get to this idea that God's up there just waiting for us to do wrong so he can throw consequences at us. He's up there heartbroken when we do wrong, but he's not seeing it. He just knows that there's consequences that are going to come by our actions. And they're there because of the laws of sowing and reaping. They just automatically happen. I do wrong, I reap, reap the, the consequences. I do right, and I'll reap the consequences. But even when we do wrong and reap the consequences, we are in God. He still loves us. Then the consequences are... Are under his control. Right. They're, they're like, not like no pain to us because we're in 
Again, if I repent, I've turned over to him, then God is going to carry me and support me through the consequences. Yeah. And that's when I can go, God, I'm just content. I, I know I deserve this one, but I'm content in you. Uh, but again, the question is, am I arguing with God, why me? Am I arguing with God, you know, I just don't understand why this could have ever happened to me? Or am I just, God, you've got it in, you've got it in control. And you know, Paul said it, you know, these light afflictions. If all I go through for my entire life when I know Christ is hardship on this world, what is that in comparison to eternity? You know, but I'm not going to care about what happened in this life you know, many, 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 many years from now. All I'm going to do is go, God, I am so happy to be in heaven. I am glad that you've given me rewards. And that's why Paul said these light afflictions when compared to eternity. He understood that these were nothing. We can gripe about what happens to us in this life, but what happens? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> and that is a great point, you know. And that, Paul also understood that, you know. I am here because of what Jesus went through. I tried painting the picture so many times, but you know, Jesus went through a lot for us. Humanly impossible to go through what he went through and still said, I love these people enough to die for them. I can't even fathom that. You know? How many of us would want to be scourged? That was bad enough. Right? The apostles went through scourgings. You know, they knew what that part was, and that, that was... That was hurting. That was a lot of pain. Then he was beaten at the cross. Even worse. He's already bloodied and, and beaten. Then they put him on a rough cross, getting splinters all over him. But the worst thing that happened to him is he became sin. He became sin, and the Father turned his back on him. I can't even imagine what that pain was. You know, and I've said this. The closest we could probably get to that is losing a long-term married, good relationship, and then losing your spouse. And that is nothing compared to what he went through. He and the Father and the Holy Spirit had been in perfect union for all time. For all time, they were perfectly unified. And then for a period of time on the cross, they are ripped apart. Ripped apart. And he's alone. For the first time in all of eternity, he is alone. We can't even begin to fathom what that would be like. Like I say, the only thing I can think of, the long-term marriage that has you know, come apart because of death, or that first, you know, that your first true love, where you have all the euphoria, and then you pine for a while afterwards when it all breaks down. And that's the closest we're going to come to that as a human, and that's nothing compared to what Jesus went through, the excessive pain that he went through. And in recent years, I've realized that the Father and the Holy Spirit had that same pain. They suffered for our forgiveness of sin as well as Jesus, because they're ripped, he was ripped apart from them. Perfect unity broken. The price that the entire Trinity paid for our salvation. Jesus took the, took the physical, but they all took the emotional uh, pain for our salvation. Like you would always mention before, like, he created this, and he knew this was going to happen. And I think, why did he 
I don't, that is something that's been mind-boggling to me for, for all my life. God, you knew this was going to happen. You knew the penalty. You knew the price that was going to need to be paid. And yet you created man. He knew this was going to happen. And he knew that he was going to have to pay the pain as well as his son for being separated from his son when his son became sin. And yet it tells us that it pleased God to bruise his son so that we could come to heaven. That's hard to even begin to, begin to understand. Jesus was the propitiation for us. And propitiation means the one that takes the wrath of God upon himself to satisfy God's anger. God poured out all of the anger for sin on himself. And he took it willingly. Very bizarre picture. He pours all of his anger for sin upon himself in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, made a human. And he, that satisfied his anger, so now he can deal with humanity without bringing judgment upon it. It's very hard to even picture, very hard to understand. And yet, that is what he has done. And it's just an amazing thought when we think about what God has done for us. People go, well, you know, I'll just uh, sin and live the way I want, and then when I get ready to die, I'll turn to God. Well, that's even there is a slap in God's face. God, I want to get as much sin as possible so that you can forgive me as much as possible. But you know, there's Christians that have that attitude. You know, if I sin, God's, got, God's going to be gracious for, for me. You know, and the sad news is God will be gracious. There's going to be consequences. And we're robbing ourselves of rewards. We're robbing ourselves of blessings. You know, but yes, God will be gracious. He will give us grace beyond anything that we can fathom and imagine. I have plenty enough sin. I don't have to go on sin on purpose. But I do know there's people who will literally say, oh, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. I'll go out and sin. That attitude alone makes me wonder if they're saved. There's an interesting song out there that says, do you still feel the pain of the nails when I sin? Uh, and I don't know that he does or not, but it was, it's a very interesting, intriguing song. God, you paid for all my sin. When I sin, are you refilling the pain of, that, of the nails for, that, for that, that pain? I don't know that he does. I don't think that he does, but it's still it's something to make us think. He went through pain that we can't even imagine to pay our debt of sin. And he took the pain of temptation. And you know, when does Satan stop tempting us? After we've fallen. Jesus never failed. How long did each one of his temptations go? We only have the one place where it tells us he was tempted. After 40 days in the wilderness, he got tempted. You know, and people were, well, Jesus was tempted three. No, Jesus was constantly tempted. Yeah, always tempted because if Satan could get him to sin, then all of everything in the Bible was wrong. And he could prove that God is not God and he could be God. So everything, and there is a school of thought, and I believe it's probably true, that every demon in the world, in all of, in all of creation, was in Israel during that period of time. Would have been a nice time to live elsewhere. You still had your sin nature. You still had sin. But 
but it'd been a whole lot easier without the temptations and problems that you had that, that are out there. They hammered Jesus all the time. The angels would have been there as well to, to keep back some so he could have some times of peace. But he was God. And he and the Father were one. And they weren't going to fall. They weren't going to fall. But his temptation was going to be such as we can't even imagine. Because there was no relenting to it. Well, it's so weird to try and fathom he's all thoughts and he's all humans. <laughs> yeah. 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 This one side you can't say, but on the other side, he's got some temptation. He's, out, you know, like, but he didn't have a sin nature because he was born of a virgin. So he had a big advantage over us. He was born of a virgin, and the sin nature, the sin nature, because he had sin nature, he'd have been, he'd have been born a sinner. Right. You're born, we're born sinners. He was born of a virgin, so he did not have the sin nature which comes from the male in the process. Eve was deceived. Adam chose, openly chose. Okay. Eve was deceived. We're not making it any lighter. She was still guilty. But Adam actively chose to partake of the fruit. He wasn't deceived. He wasn't tricked. It says Eve gave to him, gave the fruit to him, and he did eat. All right? And so sin comes from the male side of it. Jesus being born of a virgin did not have the sin nature. But he was still human. He could still be tempted. And there's a huge debate on could he have sinned. Many people say that he could not have sinned. I, I'm of the opinion that if he could not sin, there was no real temptation. Well, yeah, because God can't die. Yeah. And Jesus died. Well, he died. Why did he die? He became sin. Jesus, if he had not become sin, even though they had beat him and put him on the cross and, and all that, he would never have died. Because the wages of sin is death. I fully believe he would never have died if he hadn't become sin. And he became sin and he died pretty much instantly after he became death. Uh, after he took on all the sin of the world, which would have been horrible enough. Can you imagine what that would be like? You are perfect. There's light in your heart. There's joy in your heart. No darkness. Not even a dim shadow. And then you get all the sin of all time, all people, the entire world dumped on you at one moment. All the guilt that goes with sin, all the sadness that goes with sin, all the conviction that goes with sin, dumped on him instantly. That, you know, we, when I start thinking about all the things that went through and happening to him, it just... It draws shivers to me. How could you have gone through all of this and not given up? Not given up. Because he doesn't give up. And he knows every sin that we go through. When Jesus, when we go to Jesus, he knows everything about that sin. He knows the joy that the people had when they were starting it. He understands the guilt when they get done with it. He understands the conviction. He understands every bit about that sin because he became sin on the cross. And this is how he knows, not just because he was tempted, but because he 
actually experienced it when the father dumped all the sin of all the world on him for him to pay. And yet, he did not have any personal sin, even up to that point. Yeah. At that point, for the first time in all of, all of eternity, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd been separated by the Father, and yet he didn't sin. He comes through that, and he says, it is finished. To less die, it is paid, paid in full. He had taken the Father's punishment. He had taken the Father's wrath. And he says, okay, it's all done. Sin is paid for. And this is something important for us to understand. And I've said this over and over. I do not believe people go to hell because of their sin. They go to hell because they are not perfect. They will stand at the white throne judgment in their own righteous, filthy rags, trying to convince God that they deserve to go into heaven looking over at us in the sidelines and seeing the beautiful clothes that we're wearing because we're in the righteousness of Christ and trying to convince God that in their filthy rags they deserve to be where we are. And God's going to say no. You rejected me. You rejected me, I reject you. You're not clothed right. God has the ultimate dress code to get into heaven. His righteousness. Without his righteousness, you're rejected from heaven. And the people that stand at the white throne judgment are going to get to that place where they're going to look down and say, wow, we don't deserve to be there. We're not clothed right. And every one of them at that time are going to want to repent. Too late. They have made their decision. It is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. You, when we die, we will face judgment one way or the other. Christians will go to the bema seat of Christ and get our rewards. The lost will go to the white throne judgment and get their reward. Eternity in the lake of fire, along with Satan and his demons. And again, I've said this over and over. Hell is not Satan's kingdom. Hell is his prison. It's an eternal prison. He will be there for the, for the rest of eternity. And he is not the ruler of hell. He is a prisoner of hell. And we've got to keep that in mind because too many, even Christians, don't realize this. They're thinking, Satan's trying to build this big kingdom. Well, in his mind, he dared to build a kingdom. But he is not the king of hell. He is not the lord of hell. He is a prisoner. And he is not building a kingdom. Hell is a singular place where you are not, you're going to be in isolation for all of eternity because God understands that there is some comfort in in others in your pain. It's not a great comfort, but at least, at least I'm not the only one. In hell, total separation. So hell has no king then? Hell has no king, other than God. God is still yeah, king. Yeah, but, but, everybody but everybody is equally punished because they rejected God. They rejected God and they are going to be cast into hell and there's no ruler of hell other than God. God is still, I mean, in one of the Psalms it says, I, de I descended into hell and there you were with me. I do believe that God will be there and it's not going to be his loving kindness that's there. It's going to be his righteousness and his holiness really bugging people. You know, I could have been someplace else. I could have been in heaven. They're going to know. They're going to know that they're there and their conscience is going to burn for all of eternity. I've got what I chose and now I can't repent. I can't even imagine what it would be like. My, when my conscience burns against me, I, I love that I can go to God and say, God, forgive me. 
and he claim, and he and he put, and he takes it away. Imagine what it would be like to be in eternity, being bugged by your conscience and knowing that it's never going to di dissipate. All of eternity, your conscience never is dissipated. The worm that turns in us for eternity. Add to that the pain of the burning that never burns. When God appeared as a burning bush to, to Moses, it said the bush didn't burn. That's a really also a picture of hell. We burn for eternity and never get consumed. Our longings will never be consumed. Hope will disappear. No hope. One of the worst things that can happen to somebody is to lose all hope. In hell, there is no hope. You are there forever. So you have all kinds of problems. I mean, we're not even just talking about the physical stuff that you're going through, you know, or whatever physical is for the spiritual. <laughs> but the emotions that go along with that, a conscience that is never, never cleared, never, never protected, no hope, always alive, being able, and I really truly believe, I believe when Jesus told the story about Lazarus and the rich man, and the, and the rich man looked up, into heaven, I believe that the, those that are in hell are going to be able to look up and know what they're missing. So there's another added pain. I'm here suffering. I could be up there at ease. You know, we picture the cruel, you know, how bad hell will be. I don't want to say cruel because they deserve it. But it is going to be something that is horrendously painful at all levels all levels. We need to get this picture of what hell is so that we can love people enough to not want them to go there. Well, it's like you said, it's not because of their sin, it's because they, they rejected Jesus. Mm -hmm. They chose it. It's yeah, really hard for me to fathom that God people live in hell. <laughs> I mean, I know it's their choice. It's their choice, and he is holy and righteous and just. And we gotta, we, we've got to be careful not to separate his love and compassion that he gives to us from his holiness and justice. Holiness and justice demands the punishment. Demands it. And Jesus paid for that. And by rejecting Jesus, God says, okay, you rejected my gift. Now you get the, the other side of it. And it is hard. It's hard for me to picture God putting them through this pain for eternity. Yeah, because we know his love. It's like... But he is a, also the good judge. Yeah. The good judge sentences the people that deserve to be, be judged. Yeah, their entire life, they have the opportunity to choose God or not choose God. They chose to not choose him. They get what it, and this is one of the things when we get to heaven, and that's why there's a big debate. In heaven, will I know my lo that my loved ones went, you know, didn't go to heaven and went to hell? And I don't know the answer to that. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's two schools of thought that no, God totally wipes their, their memory out from us. And I don't think that, that doesn't sound like God to me. But I think God will show us, here is the total reason they're there. This is the, how many times they rejected me. They had more than, you know, more than plenty of opportunities to choose me, and they didn't. And we'll understand that they're there because they chose it. And I can't fathom how that will make it any easier. <laughs> but understanding it from God's point of view and his justice point of view probably will make it so that it doesn't bring tears to our eyes. 
we may miss them. You know, there may be some of this missing, and that's why on one side I actually understand that God wiping their memory from us completely would be wonderful. But that would just put all kinds of holes through our mind, and I don't, and I don't know how that. Well, well, whose whose son are you? I don't even know who your parents were. That's because they're in hell. If you wiped our, our memories of ones, if you would wipe our memories of all the times we experienced God in our life. Right. And saw, and saw the benefit by what they put us through or anything. So I, I really do believe because we understand it from God's point of view that it won't be sad. You know, yeah, we might be a little disappointed that they chose to, do, you know, not re, you know, reject God, but we'll understand they have gotten what they deserved because they chose it. So it's going to be an interesting, interesting thing. I don't think a lot about heaven. I think a lot about what God went through to get me there. I do a lot because it makes me really want to know to help others, to pass the gospel around. When I really think of what God is protecting them from, saving them from, and what he went through. Uh, and, I, and I've said this at various times. I've had gout for a long time, and gout is horrendously painful horrendously painful when I get a full-blown attack, and I would wish gout on nobody. And gout is nothing compared to what hell's going to be. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. I don't want to see people who'd abuse another Christian going, going through hell and going through judgment. I want them to come to Christ. Plain and simple, I want to see everybody come to Christ and be able to choose to follow him. And this is why it's so important for us to truly understand the awfulness of hell and the wonder of what God did for us to, to redeem us. And between those two things, we should be motivated to talk to the lost world, not to judge them, because we don't deserve anything good either. We just accepted Christ. And even after I've accepted him, I do all kinds of sins and bad things that make me deserve hell if I was to be seen in the flesh. I don't have any way, no matter, no matter if you're looking at the best Christian, the person who's put their life together, they still sin. They may not be what we consider in human terms big sins, but they still sin. They don't even have the right to be judging others because they look at their life and say, God, I am totally messed up. I can't follow you for more than a day or two. And most of us can't even follow him that long without a sin. Uh, if we make it through most of the day, we feel happy. God, I, I, I'm okay. I stayed at home the entire day reading the Bible. I'm okay today. <laughs> and God says, well, I really wanted you to go outside and talk to that person down the street, but okay. <laughs> but you know, we need to be so careful about our attitudes toward everything. We can't get self-righteous. We can't get that we're better than everybody else because right then we're committing pride. You know, right then we're in the middle of pride and God hates pride. And we need to just love other people enough to tell them about Christ and to keep them from going to hell. I think sometimes it's not that I think I'm good enough. Sometimes I don't really think I'm good enough to talk to other people about Christ. Yeah. That's a possibility. But by the same token, you are blood-bought, redeemed follower of Christ, so you are good enough to talk to anybody about it. And as I said, what most people fear, and I've said this several times, is they fear being asked something they don't know the answer to. And in reality, if you really get to the place where you understand that that's a good thing, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. Let me go find the answer for that, and I'll talk to you again and make an appointment to talk to them. 
Now, if it's some stranger off the street, you're probably not going to get to talk to them, but you might still, you know, give me an email address, give me a phone number, let me, let me find the answer for you. The thing that we fear the most is the best thing that can happen to us, because now I get to share it twice with them. And when I come back with the answer, I'm going to tell them all about Jesus again. And then hopefully they'll ask me another question that I don't know. I would love to have those questions. You know what, that's an interesting point of view. Let me go find out some more about that. And then go find the answer. Because God has opened doors for us. And if we really, truly start seeing what hell is like, it will motivate us to share with others, especially family and friends. But you know, I don't want to see anybody go to hell. And I don't do enough witnessing, even myself. And I try to witness you know, frequently, but I don't do enough witnessing either. I am not an evangelist. You know, God has called us to all share the gospel, but there are some people that are literally evangelists. They, they, can, they are gifted at it. And I'm not gifted at it. I, I do an adequate job with, through the Spirit, but I am not gifted at it. It's the Holy Spirit. But it's fun when the Holy Spirit takes over your words. And this is the important thing for us as Christians. We open our mouth, and God fills our mouth. If you just get in the habit of sharing the gospel with people, you will be amazed as you start listening to your voice coming out of your body, knowing that it's not you, and knowing that God has taken over. I have had that happen so many times, where I'm just going through, and God is the one speaking. And I'm just kind of standing back going, wow, that's, what's going on here? Uh, God, uh, why is my voice talking? And I've just learned over time, it's God. God and the Spirit filling my mouth, filling my words, and speaking. And you'll end up saying things you never knew you knew, never knew, you're going, wow, God, am I really that smart? Do, do, do I really know those things? You know, do, do I, am I really that eloquent? I'm making arguments I couldn't even believe. And God goes, nope, it's me. And that's when we get our reward. He speaks through us, and we get a reward for it. Why? Because I stepped, you, I stepped forward and started. And God says, that's all I wanted. I wanted you to step forward and start. Now I, I get to do the work. I'll go ahead and do the work. And we just step back, and you know, it's amazing. I can't even describe it. If you haven't experienced it, you don't know what I'm describing. But there's times when I have just stepped back in my mind, and it's no longer me talking. And I know it's not me talking. It's happened in... When, I, uh, when I'm witnessing to people, it's happened when I teach uh, you know, on several occasions where I'm not the one speaking anymore and I know that it's not me. I'm just back enjoying it as much as anybody else because God is the one working. And those are the great times when you get that experience. It is a wonderful time just to know God has used me. Oh, it is a freedom, but it is just amazing. God, you're using, you're using me? This is, God, you're, you're, you're working through me. You're speaking through me. And, you know, and it, it is just an amazing thing to watch God do this. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us know how to follow you. Lord, help us know that you are the one that is God. You are Lord. Help us to know to surrender to you and not question you, not to, not to fight against you. And we just thank you for your love, your care, your desire to use us. Lord, give us the freedom to just relax in you and surrender to you. 
and watch you work through us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.